Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, Biden's false statement on China emboldens the Taiwanese independence movement and risks war with China. Also, we'll feature a special report on the treatment of drone whistleblower Daniel Hale, the first person accused of an unauthorized disclosure of information to be imprisoned in a communications management unit by the United States government. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. It is good to have you all along with us. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 on the Pacifica Radio Network. First up, we turn our attention to uh, the President of the United States, apparently warmongering. I'm not sure he knew what the hell he was saying, uh, but he certainly was waving the flag and opening up the door uh, to hostility uh, and push us, pushing us along uh, one more step towards war with China. Joining us to talk about this is Professor Francis Boyle. He's a professor of international law at the University of Illinois, and he has written many books about international law, about law, and he's our favorite go-to guy on stuff like this. Uh, Professor Boyle, welcome back to Flashpoints. Well, good evening, uh, Dennis, and thank you very much for having me on and my best to your listening audience. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, well, let, let's get into this. Uh, Biden Biden sort of stepped over the line, didn't he? It sort of, it's almost like the president was attempting to expand uh, the War Powers Act, which uh, is already uh, a devastating blow to the possibility of peace in this world. Well, Dennis, we have to understand and put this into uh, historical uh, context. President Biden's statement was a uh, major uh, reversal of U.S. foreign policy going back to the uh, Carter administration with respect to the dispute between uh, China and uh, uh, Taiwan, and it is uh, existentially dangerous. Uh, First, uh, Biden has no right to commit the United States government to uh, defend uh, Taiwan. We did used to have that obligation in the uh, uh, mutual self-defense treaty uh, we had with the uh, Republic of China located on uh, Taiwan. But as part of the normal normalization of diplomatic relations uh, between the United States and China under President Carter, that was really started by uh, Nixon, uh, we pulled out of that treaty. So we have no obligation to defend uh, uh, Taiwan. And indeed, uh, you will note in his statement there, uh, Biden said we did. That's a bold-faced lie. Uh, and, and Biden knows better. Uh, he was uh, uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was a lawyer. And uh, he joined the Senate in January of 1973. So he was there for the debate over the uh, War Powers Resolution. So this this is uh, extremely uh, dangerous, uh, reckless. It reverses a generation of American foreign policy towards this dispute. Uh, and, and it's based on a pack of lies. Only Congress could uh, authorize uh, war uh, uh, against China 
uh, over Taiwan. And uh, regretfully, as you know, there are several Democrats now uh, that want to give uh, Biden uh, this power uh, in a uh, war powers uh, resolution, which is which is completely uh, reckless. Well, and it's troubling in the context of um, U.S. foreign policy through several presidents. Uh, you know that there is this policy of the Pacific pivot, and that is the long-term goal of the United States to surround China by uh, using the countries as sort of a national security uh, setup and uh, surround and control China by land, air, sea, and space. Uh, and it does seem that this is, you know, one would think sometimes that, oh, Biden's, you know, he's just talking off the top of his head and he doesn't know what he's talking about but he does know what he's talking about he he didn't realize the little nuance uh line that he was stepping over but clearly he is continuing a policy that's going to lead us into a direct war with china that's correct dennis and uh this really goes back to uh obama uh, my Harvard, fellow harvard law uh graduate uh magna cum laude who started this uh what he called the pivot toward Asia, which was really a uh, pivot against uh, China. And that was continued by Trump. And now it has even uh, been uh, existentially escalated by uh, Biden literally threatening war with uh, China. You know, the Pentagon has won uh, uh, war games on this. And uh, all the uh, war games came up that, that we lost. So uh, it, it's very uh, dangerous. It's provocative. Uh, Biden is uh, routinely now sending U.S. warships uh, through the Taiwan Strait. Now, I want to make it clear the Taiwan Strait is an international waterway, so anyone can go through there. But it, this is done, again, just just to uh, provoke uh, China. Likewise, in the uh, South China Sea, the, these uh, so-called uh, freedom of uh, navigation operations is totally bogus. Uh, uh, Trump did it, and Biden is just uh, continuing it at the uh, same pace as uh, Trump did, uh, threatening and actually moving uh, U.S. naval forces into uh, contested uh, waters and involving the uh, threatened use of force that is uh, prohibited by the uh, United Nations Charter and has uh, major uh, uh, I would say war maneuvers going on in the uh, in the South China Sea at, at a constant tempo. Would you say that a sort of an equivalent would be if uh, the Chinese started sailing ships th through the Mediterranean and uh, off the coast of uh, Florida? That's you know three miles out international waters. Couldn't the Chinese claim the same right? Well, that's the problem, uh, Dennis. Uh, imagine uh, if uh, the Chinese began uh, sending uh, aircraft carriers and other naval forces uh, around the uh, Caribbean and also into the uh, Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I don't think you know we, we'd be very happy with any of that, even if they uh, were sailing in international waters. But I want to make it clear on these phone ops uh, operations, this is a different uh, uh, issue completely. China is not uh, uh, impeding uh, the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, Navy 
uh, uh, sailing around the uh, South China Sea. We Again, this is international uh, waters. We have a right to go through there if we want to. Uh, uh, but unfortunately, we're, these phone ops uh, uh, send U.S. Uh, naval forces into contested waters. Now, I'm not saying I necessarily accept uh, 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 China's claims to these uh, rocklets and islands and shoals and all the rest of it. Uh, but we have uh, the United States no right to actually use military force to contest these claims. And, of course, one has to remember that uh, the United States is still at war with Korea. Uh, there are these massive exercises on and off uh, that uh, are clearly a message to China. They'd have to be out of their minds not to be paying attention to what is actually going on in terms of U.S. foreign policy. And, of course, it was also stepped up the the sort of the patriot of the patriotism of it was stepped up uh, through the covid and you know it became the the china virus and this just became another example of china bashing that's leading us closer and closer to war we don't it would be a very a terrible moment in history if the united states went to war against china well, Dennis, and it's not just now uh, China bashing. Yes, you're right. There's been a lot of uh, China bashing, starting with uh, Obama. But now uh, Biden has take it, taken it to a new level. This is outright warmongering uh, with uh, uh, U.S. Uh, naval forces uh, on maneuvers in the South China Sea and through the uh, uh, Taiwan uh, Straits. Yes. So it's it, it's an escalation of the whole situation, <clears throat> and it very well might embolden the uh, uh, Taiwan uh, independence movement there uh, to to secede, which I think uh, uh, China would treat as a causes belly. We'd have war. Dennis, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I, I read it, but in his clash of uh, civilizations, Sam Huntington uh, last chapter was a uh, nuclear war between China and the United States over uh, time. Francis? Um, I think we lost France. All right. All right. Uh, we're we're going to uh, have to call Francis back. We just... Uh, lost him in the middle of a sentence. Uh, so let me tell you while we're trying to get him back uh, that, uh, again, the organizers have asked me to mention, uh, Jeff in particular, uh, that there is going to be a rally uh, this weekend for Julian Assange in Oakland, for those of you in the Bay Area. There are things happening all over the world in support of Julian Assange, but uh, organizers in Oakland are having a rally in front of the Grand Lake Theater. It's happening at noon to one thirty. There are wonderful speakers, uh, both in person and on tape, among them Alice Walker, Daniel Ellsberg. They're going to have video presentations, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Noam Chomsky. All right, and I think we have Francis back. You were in the, right in the launching on the Sam Huntington uh, quote and uh, writing. Right, that uh, at the end of the book, Clash of Civilizations, which, as you know, is, is reprehensible. I went through the uh, exact same Ph.D. program at Harvard that produced Huntington before me, and many of us refused to uh, study with Huntington 
uh, as a matter of principle because of his uh, diehard support for the uh, uh, Vietnam uh, War. And then later he went on a uh, jihad against uh, Latinx uh, in this uh, country. But the book ends, and, and Huntington was one of these Harvard inner and outers constantly on the shuttle to Washington, D.C. from Boston, advising the Pentagon, the CIA, and the Department of State. So, you know, he had an idea of what was going on. And that book ends with a nuclear war uh, between uh, China and the United States over Taiwan. That's the way it ends, right. So uh, even Huntington envisioned uh, how dangerous, existentially dangerous, uh, this situation could be, yes. And, of course, it, it it's, uh, I mean, the United States doesn't need an excuse to get into an arms race, but clearly um, we can see from the defense budgets and the expanding budgets and the kinds of weaponry that they're building now and the advanced uh, structures, you know, in terms of uh, the drones that, the United States is very serious about this pivot. They're very serious about wrapping a ring around China because the, uh, they're worried that uh, maybe the 21st century might be the China century, and the United States doesn't want to accept that. Uh, that's exactly uh, right, uh, uh, Dennis. It, it does have some parallels to the uh, origins of the First World War, where Germany was the uh, rising power and uh, challenging uh, Great Britain, and that had a very uh, significant role to play in the outbreak of that needless slaughter that, that you know killed 10 million people. Uh, this could be far worse. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Professor Francis Boyle. He's a professor of international law at the University of Illinois. He has written a zillion books, and they're all very important. He deals with international law, uh, human rights, uh, and has uh, been on the front line. Um, Francis, we have a few minutes left. Can I ask you to give us your sense of uh, what are your thoughts on Julian Assange and the way in which he has been treated after releasing videos like Collateral Murder that uh, helped draw the Iraq war to a close. What do you think is at stake here? Do you think uh, this is a challenge to the free press? Of course it is. He's he's persecuted simply for uh, practicing uh, journalism. It's that simple. And they uh, not only want to silence him, but now the latest reports is the CIA was uh, uh, planning to uh, kidnap him and assassinate him. So, you know, they want him uh, eliminated uh, and and to set an example uh, and not only set an example, but to have what we lawyers call a chilling effect on all uh, all uh, reputable uh, journalists such as uh, Assange and yourself. Yes. Yeah. Um I got a got into a little argument with somebody at the local uh, cafe uh, about you know who was really upset about this uh, revelation around the CIA and was saying the CIA that's our government they would never do something like that there you know they, Assange broke the law uh, he uh, violated U.S. national security and he needs to pay the piper how do you respond to that? Well. You know, what law did he uh, uh, violate, the so-called Espionage Act, which 
goes back to the First World War and had nothing at all to do with uh, uh, journalists. Uh, it really had to do with uh, spies. And uh, Assange wasn't uh, any spy or anything like that. As I said, he was practicing uh, investigative uh, journalism. And in addition, he was uh, uh, revealing uh, United States uh, war crimes, which is a public service. You know, so many uh, 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 journalists, reporters won't do that. And uh, Assange uh, courageously uh, did that, working with uh, Chelsea Manning and others. Do you see this as a slippery slope? In terms of the limiting of journalists, the intimidating of uh, the intimidation of journalists, the way of cooling out uh, investigative reporters who really are trying to get to the truth, who believe that it's the job of the journalist to monitor the centers of power and report to the people. You know, as we both know, Dennis, uh, so few journalists really do that, or uh, reporters just watch and read the uh, mainstream uh, news media. It's pretty much a pro uh, uh, United States government and uh, 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 Pentagon uh, propaganda. I mean, that goes all the way back to Herman and Chomsky uh, manufacturing consent. And then uh, uh, more recently, uh, uh, Friel and Falk, the record of the paper speaking of the New York Times. So very few journalists really do this uh, anyway. And this this is a shot across uh, uh, the bow for uh, all of the, all of you, right? And I have to, you know, I'm a, a professor, and I have to rely on journalists uh, to, you know, I can't travel all over the world and dig up facts for myself. I have to rely on uh, uh, invest, independent, investigative journalists such as yourself uh, to compile facts that I think are credible, and then to uh, draw my uh, own conclusions and. Uh, you know, you have you, you have John Pilger, uh, you have Assange. I mean, there there are uh, a handful of these people, right? Well, uh, before we let you go, I think this would be a very good day. You usually do a sign-off with us that has to do with uh, uh, everything that we're talking about. The fact that a man by the name of John Yu is a, a, a celebrated member of the Bolt Law School here uh, in the Bay Area at UC Berkeley. Um, and you tend to refer to him as a, a war criminal based on uh, information that the CIA was very capable of kidnapping and killing and torturing. Your thoughts on John Yu as a training the young people, the lawyers of the future? Right, and remember, of course the CIA does that. That's what uh, uh, Extraordinary Rendition was all about by the CIA, which was a euphemism uh, for uh, the enforced disappearances of human, uh, human beings. Uh, which in this case was a crime against humanity, and also their subsequent torture, uh, which was also a crime uh, against humanity. So, you know, we have a long history of the uh, CIA uh, either disappearing people or killing them outright. Um, as for you, the the problem as I see it, Dennis, yes, he was on the faculty at uh, uh, Berkeley Law. Then he took a leave of absence uh, to go work for uh, Bush uh, Jr. Then he returned to uh, Berkeley Law. He was on leave. Well, okay. But then the faculty, the fascist faculty at Berkeley Law voted, knowing full well all these war crimes, 
uh, that that you was involved in and felonies and torture uh, and everything else. The faculty there voted to give John Yu their most prestigious and distinguished uh, endowed professorship. And in my mind, that condemns the entire uh, Berkeley Law faculty by approving you. They basically became accessories after the fact uh, to all the uh, crimes that uh, 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 you uh, inflicted uh, on people on behalf of uh, Bush Jr. And personally, I wouldn't send my dog to Berkeley Law. I like dog. His name is uh, Scotty. Is and uh, beam me up, Scotty. There's no intelligent on this planet. And the sad part. Uh, yes. The sad here, Dennis. The uh, the uh, uh, former uh, occupant of uh, what what you used position there was my friend uh, Frank Newman, who was a great international lawyer and international uh, human rights uh, lawyer, uh, very supportive me at the uh, beginning of my uh, career. We later became colleagues and friends. He was the uh, Ralston professor of international law at Berkeley Law. He became dean of Berkeley Law, and later uh, he was appointed to the uh, California uh, Supreme Court, man of great courage, integrity, and principle. And now uh, he has allegedly been uh, replaced by a war criminal and a felon uh, and a liar like uh, John Yu. I'm sure that uh, today uh, Frank Newman is crying in heaven uh, at the entire Berkeley Law faculty uh, gave their most distinguished uh, chair to John Yu. And and just the short of it, but you're not talking hyperbole when you say war crimes, war criminal, torture, and the connection to you. You you mean that he is directly connected to the torture by writing the justification for the Bush administration? That's exactly right. And we have the, uh, uh, Dennis, as you're aware of, the uh, uh, Nazi uh, justice case. Uh, at Nuremberg, where uh, lawyers were held uh, legally accountable for uh, war crimes because of the role that they played. Yes, and uh, that's exactly John Yu, right. And the Berkeley uh, uh, Law faculty uh, 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 gave him their most distinguished chair, uh, despite the uh, justice case, the Nuremberg justice case, which I doubt uh, they're all such uh, ignoramuses there. They probably never read and never heard about. I know Frank Newman did, uh, but, uh, you know, Berkeley Law, I think now is hopeless. All right. Uh, Professor Francis Boyle, professor of international law at the University of Illinois, author of many books. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time out to be with us again and talk about these crucial issues. Appreciate it, well, uh, Professor Boyle. Thanks so much for taking the time to interview me, uh, Dennis, at this, uh, I think, critical time in uh, uh, American uh, history and, and the history of the world. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, please stay safe and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye bye, Dennis. Bye bye now. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the plight of uh, convicted uh, drone whistleblower Daniel Hale. There's a lot to talk about there. Stay with us.
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We turn our attention to the imprisoned drone whistleblower, Daniel Hale. And we want to tell you about uh, his latest digs because it's very troubling in terms of the way he's being treated and what it might mean for the future of journalism and particularly whistleblowers who are trying to tell the truth, say, for instance, to stop a war. Uh, Kevin Gostola is a wonderful uh, investigative reporter. Uh, he is uh, reported extensively about the cases of uh, WikiLeaks, uh, Julian Assange, other things. He is the managing editor of Shadowproof, uh, and they uh, also put out the dissenter. Uh, Kevin, you have a piece uh, that uh, just came out a couple of days ago in the dissenter about the way in which Daniel Hale is being treated. Could you lay this out for us, please? Yeah. So first, just to be clear here, everyone who hears information about Daniel Hale going forward and the status of his imprisonment should get it from standwithdanielhale.org first and foremost, or it could be reporting like mine that references people who have spoken with Daniel Hale or um, his attorney, someone who represents him, like Jesslyn Raddick, who's been a longtime advocate of whistleblowers. So I'm just going to read the statement to start us off that they put out, saying that Daniel's currently within the general population at USP Marion, so that's the United States Penitentiary Marion in Illinois, but was placed into the communications management unit within that facility. And we can discuss what CMUs are. But they add, this was a significant improvement in internal living conditions from its previous facilities, but CMUs severely limit and heavily monitor inmate communications and have been heavily criticized for their Kafkaesque violations of due process and widespread religious and political profiling. Um, and so he was supposed to go to a federal medical center in North Carolina called Butner. Uh, it was a low security facility and there um, he was supposed to go there because he actually has post-traumatic stress. He saw he lives with moral injury from his involvement in the drone program. He was an Air Force uh, technician or a specialist and someone who was involved in, in, in doing intelligence work with high value targets who were um, on the kill list. And that has resulted in him living with this post-traumatic stress and not to mention being under a cloud of investigation this case the prosecution against him we can date it all the way back to 2014 2015 so he's been living with mental health problems and now they went against the agreement to send him to this north carolina facility which was informally agreed upon between the attorneys the judge and uh, the Justice Department, they went back on it and they sent him to one of two facilities that have these communication management units that were put into these two facilities back in 2006 as part of the war on terrorism. They're supposed to be for terrorists or quote-unquote high-risk inmates. The people who are in there are typically individuals who have been convicted of being involved in bombings or bombing attempts. Um, but some of them can be in there for political uh, crimes. Um, they can be in there for um, c crimes that have to do with basically criminalizing their religion. They're disproportionately target Muslim prisoners. And in fact, there's a lawsuit before the appeals court in D.C. right now over uh, these, these CMUs. So we can get into the sort of like conditions for 
what these CMUs are and what this really means for Daniel. But the, the biggest point here is that the uh, government has gone back on um, sending him somewhere in which he could be cared for to a place where it, it seems like it would likely make your PTSD worse. Okay, let's back up a little bit and and sort of broaden out uh, people's understanding of Daniel Hale. Uh, He became a whistleblower because he was horrified to see things like what we saw at the end of the uh, Afghanistan withdrawal of the United States troops, where there was a a slaughter. The entire corporate press uh, reported it as an effective hit on, at first, an effective hit on terrorists that were going to go after U.S. soldiers, but it turned out to be a slaughter of one more family, including, I think, three or four children. These kinds of incidents uh, continued apparently Case. Uh, could you talk about how uh, Daniel Hale came into this and just a bit about his evolution to becoming a whistleblower? Right. So uh, he comes to the military by way of the poverty draft, you know, hoping that he could get some kind of opportunity, be able to uh, pay for school, maybe have a career that would develop out of going to the military and he deploys to Afghanistan. He's involved in helping to do the geolocation of the electronic devices that alleged terrorists or militants have, which they, they want to locate those devices so that they can then say like that's where that person is. And then they can launch a drone strike on that, that those coordinates. But uh, the problem is, obviously, and as he detailed in his whistleblowing, that not all the time do those militants or terrorists have those uh, pe- those phones on their persons. Um, and so then that means that you have a whole lot of collateral damage or you have a whole lot of killing of civilians who really aren't even the people on the list. And that also presumes that the people on the list actually deserve to be on the kill list as well. Um, so he saw firsthand the faulty intelligence, the kind of thing that leads exactly to why that aid worker was um, obliterated on the, 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 the in the final week, uh, marking the end of the U.S. military occupation of Afghanistan. And he comes back home. Uh, he needs money, though. He's, he's got to be able to to uh, have money for college and, and everything still. And so he's not even in a place that he really wants to be. And he, he looks at this contractor leaders and says, if I, if I go to join up in this con that, to do this work, then I'm going to get a lot of money and it's going to set me up for life. So if I can just go work there for like six or seven months, let's say, then I'll get a really good paycheck and I won't ever have to do this. I can leave this all behind. But he goes there and he sees that people there are celebrating the drone strikes. They're watching videos of drone strikes. He has the same reaction that's very similar to what Chelsea Manning felt when she was seeing videos um, in the brig and, and famously t- uh, talked about seeing these in, in her intelligence facility when she was working as an intel analyst in Baghdad. And so he decides he's going to give documents to Jeremy Scahill at The Intercept, which are published as the drone papers, and they expose all these things. I mean, the most vivid uh, tidbit to share is that in a five-month span, he could document that 90% of the people being killed were civilians and weren't who the U.S. was intending to kill. 
So you, wow. know, you have that example. But ninety percent. You said ninety percent. Ninety percent. Nine zero. Nine zero. Yeah, that's a nine with a zero. Not nine percent, but ninety percent. And it's it's staggering. You know that 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 rate is 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 something that people really should think about because it says to you that that aid worker Amadi and his family, those children that killed, that's part of the norm. You know, we reacted to that as a horrific tragedy, and we should. It is a tragedy, but it also happens with a, a extreme regularity. Extreme regularity. We're speaking with Kevin Gostola, wonderful journalist uh, who has been reporting about these kinds of issues, uh, done a lot of good work uh, around what's been going on with Julian Assange, uh, and uh, we appreciate it. Uh, could you um, talk a little bit about th- this case, you know, going into a, having a special prison I mean, it's called the prison for journalists and truth tellers. Uh, the good, you know, because the good journalists depend on whistleblowers and government documents and uh, uh, work that is being constantly uh, exp- criminalized, and the criminalization is being expanded. So it's more and more dangerous uh, for journalists uh, and for whistleblowers to tell the truth. Uh, I mean, this plays into the case of Julian Assange. Um, Where do you see this going? Yeah, so what people should understand is Daniel Hale is in this facility right now because they can control his communications this way. And they want to do that because there's actually a whistleblower who came before him who supports Daniel Hale, and they don't want him to do what this whistleblower did. So you may have heard of CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou, who in 2007 went on ABC News and said in on television that the President George W. Bush's administration was engaging in waterboarding. It wasn't a few bad apples. It was official policy. And, oh, by the way, I'm a former CIA officer, and I'm going to tell you, I think it's torture. And it created a a public relations issue for the administration, and then they decided they needed to target him. He eventually was prosecuted, faced Espionage Act charges. We won't go through the whole details of his case, but eventually he accepted a plea agreement, and he did go to a prison, and he served 30 months in Loretto, prison in Pennsylvania. And while he was there, he wrote letters from Loretto, which I published. Uh, we used I used to be part of a site that was called Firedog Lake, and then we spun off and became Shadowproof. And at Firedog Lake, we published letters from Loretto that came from John Kiriakou. They do not want Daniel Hale to tell us and document his time incarcerated at any facility in the U.S. because... As we know, anyone who follows what happens in our U.S. prison system, every single facility has its own list of crimes happening within the closed walls. And so they don't want him to blow the whistle on incarcerated issues, uh, carceral issues, and uh, that's what they're doing. And they can do it. The CMU allows them to do incredible things to you. He only gets like four hours of social visits. Uh, a month. He can only get like so many uh, amounts of, of calls, like three or four calls a month, uh, 15 minutes a piece, and they can decide that he's only allowed to call immediate family if they want. 
Um, they can restrict who he talks to. They inspect every single piece of mail, um, even the mail he's sending to his attorney. If, if he would like to send privileged communications, they still get to vet that to some degree. Um, and uh, they have an FBI agent who monitors everything he's saying, everything that is involved in communications. If the FBI agent doesn't have time for the phone call, then Daniel Hill has to find another time. You basically have to make an appointment to have conversations over the phone with someone. And this is what they're doing to him because they're afraid that he will tell more truths. And has, um, how would you compare what's going on with him to what's happening to Julian Assange? And is, does one case play into another? How do you see this? Yeah, and so I think that the United States government may have committed a, a massive overreach here in that it's possible this jeopardizes their ability to extradite Julian Assange to the United States next week. And I know flashpoints will be covering it. There's a major appeal hearing by the U.S. government saying that they think it was wrong that the lower court denied Julian Assange's extradition to the United States. They did not believe that it would be oppressive for Julian Assange to be put in a U.S. prison. We think differently. But they're going to have to prove that they would be able to treat him humanely. In the meantime, now what this has done is handed something real to the attorneys, to Assange's legal team, to put before the High Court of Justice to say, if Assange is brought to the U.S. because he's charged under the Espionage Act, just like Daniel Hale was, we believe he would be put in a communications management unit. And what does that mean? Well, for Julian Assange, I'll, I'll talk about the most important thing. We can't get to every reason why CMUs will be bad for Julian Assange. But let me tell you the most vivid thing that would really bother Julian Assange and be most upsetting to people who support Julian Assange. If he's put in a CMU, he cannot touch or hug or kiss his partner, Stella Morris. He cannot hold his children. He has two new, he has Gabe and Max, two little boys. He would not be able to have them sit with him on his lap and, um, you know, do the things that fathers do with their children as they are growing up from the age of being a toddler to, you know, older. And he would not have that. If he's in prison for, let's say, five or seven years, he's going to miss out on all the time that they're growing up. He's not going to be able to give them a hug until they're over 10 years old, basically. And that is why it is, it is something that, you know, people, you know, the legal team is basically going to have a gift to stand before the High Court of Justice and say, this is why it would be inhumane for Julian Assange to be extradited to the United States. And what do you think the dangers to journalism are uh, if the U.S. Uh, is, manages to grab him up, throw him in jail forever where they want him to die? What are the implications for journalism? Do you, you see this as a problem? Yeah, no, it's a huge problem. To some extent, they've already done the damage. I think the question is whether it's permanent. The good thing is we see a lot of pushback from press organizations. We've seen uh, round condemnation from the Yahoo News report, which revealed that there were discussions about kidnapping and killing Julian Assange. And now what we really need to get people 
all over the world to understand is that the United States is taking a law that should only be applied to citizens. And even then, it's highly debatable. I think there's a lot that, you know, Congress is failing to do. Um, they, they really do not seem to think that this is an issue. But this Espionage Act needs to be abolished and taken off the books completely because it is abused. But uh, they're trying to apply a U.S. law to an Australian citizen. Why should he have to answer to our laws? Why should anybody from any other countries around the world have to be uh, beholden to these? It's really a bad thing because there are countries around the world that I think who have some power and influence who would like to do exactly what the United States is doing in order to stamp out journalism that they feel is threatening. The U.S. is taking this step and sending a signal to other countries that they could make journalists their enemies. And that's why people should be supportive of Julian Assange and opposed to this case. You know, I, I, I have to throw this out to you, uh, and I've been thinking a lot about this. You, you mentioned John Caracu. So he he goes to jail for trying to tell the truth and uh, save uh, lives, many lives, uh, stand up against torture, uh, which is not a good thing for the United States government to be exporting as a sort of forward fighting tool. Um, he goes to jail. Another person by the name of Nicole Wallace was the communications director for George W. Bush. So Karaku goes to jail, and Nicole Wallace gets two hours on MSNBC to be uh, a former Republican. How does that play with you? She was the communications yeah, no. director. She, you, Go on, please. Well, well I would just... I would just say that every single one of the officials in the Bush administration, we allowed President Barack Obama and his administration to lull us into this collective sense that we could move forward without looking backward, that it was okay to not have trials for these people, that it was okay for there to not be repercussions. You know, we saw this. We don't need to get into it, but it definitely needs to be mentioned that last week this was on display with Colin Powell's death. And it's going to be on display when other members of the Bush administration die in the next years. And I think it's a fundamental issue. And you mentioned what, you know, that, that John Kiriakou is going to prison. Nicole Wallace is getting her show. Another whistleblower to mention is Thomas Drake, an NSA whistleblower who's a big supporter of Daniel's, has been a mentor of Daniel Hale, trying to help him through this because he himself was prosecuted under the Espionage Act for challenging the, the way that the NSA just was trampling privacy rights within the agency and, and didn't care about the programs it was developing to collect people's data. And uh, he's not going to be able to call uh, uh, Daniel Hale in prison. Uh, D- John Kiriakou had been talking to him on the phone. These are people who are going to be blacklisted and not be allowed to talk to Daniel um, because this is the cruelty of the American prison system. That is so troubling. Uh, well, uh, I just want to let people know that you're a wonderful journalist. Uh, your uh, work at the at Shadowproof uh, and Shadowproof also produces the Dissenter. I believe this is October. This article about uh, Daniel is on the, in October 18th. Is that right? The Dissenter, October 18th. Is that yeah, how, how's the best way to follow your work? Yes. Yeah. They go to the dissenter 
whistleblowers.org. Um, it's a free newsletter, and they can subscribe and get updates on whistleblower stories as well as Julian Assange's case. Beautiful. Thank you so much for all the great journalism you do. I hope you'll come back and uh, keep us posted on these uh, crucial issues. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. The organizers uh, in the Bay Area of a rally to free Julian Assange have uh, uh, been texting me and they're urging me to urge you to stand up for Julian Assange. Uh, they uh, will be protesting and having a teach-in. Uh, for those of you listening in the Bay Area, uh, in Oakland, uh, at the Grand Lake Theater, uh, sort of under the big, beautiful awning, you can see up there now, uh, free Julian Assange. We thank the, the folks who run that theater uh, for uh, putting that up there. That was pretty courageous of them. Uh, so again, Jeff Mackler and the organizers of this event are inviting you to come down at 12 noon to Oakland, to the Grand Lake Theater, uh, and uh, they want you to protest and it's also going to be a teach-in and there's going to be some pretty amazing uh, people there. Nozomi Hayanez, she's the author of WikiLeaks, The Global Fourth Estate, uh, history is happening. Uh, also, Mickey Huff from Project Censored, Cynthia Papermaster from Code Pink, Rick Sterling. Uh, there's going to be videos and audios from uh, Jabari Shaw, from Alice Walker. We're going to hear from her in a moment. Uh, Dan Ellsberg of the Pentagon's paper. He knows a lot about whistleblowing and how whistleblowers are treated. He had his psychiatrist's office broken into. Uh, Mumia Bu Jamal is going to have a message for you all. Noam Chomsky, Boots Riley of the Coup. All these folks will be there via uh, auditory or visual uh, video. And I'm going to make an appearance one way or the other. Um, but uh, again, uh, this is happening on Saturday. That's tomorrow, 12 noon to 1.30 in front of the Grand Lake Theater, for those of you who are in the Bay Area. It's downtown Oakland, beautiful theater, beautiful place to be. Uh, and again, it's happening 12 to one thirty. My name is Dennis Bernstein. The show is Flashpoints on Pacifico Radio. And we're going to take a short musical break. And when we come back, you're going to hear a clip of an interview, uh, of the interview I did yesterday with Alice Walker, Pulitzer Prize winning, wonderful author of The Color Purple, who spent some time with us. And she talked some of that time about Julian Assange and why Julian Assange should be free. So we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back with Alice Walker.
You have been very outspoken about Julian Assange. You're on, uh, I believe, a national committee or an organizing committee to call attention. You've written uh, publicly uh, in major places about um, Assange. Tell us what you see as the heart of the matter. What's at stake? Why are you out there fighting uh, for this man's freedom? Well, because he's telling the truth about things we need to know and things that can actually help us save our own lives. If we know what our military is doing, uh, we may possibly decide not to join it, either in activity or in thought. And that's major. And he has a right to do that. He has a right to expose. Um, he and Chelsea Manning, they have a right to expose these awful, quote, secrets that we're not supposed to know about, even though we're sending our children, um, you know, far away to places they never heard of, to be slaughtered. So I very much appreciate what he's done. And now, Dennis, the other yes, thought about him that I just today about why they hate him so much, I mean, the ones who try to, you know, kill him, basically. You know, Julian is very, very white-looking. Uh, and he looks like the archetype, in a way, <laughs> of this image <laughs> of the white man that they think of as the one who would never turn evidence against them. And somewhere in that heart of theirs, or whatever is passing for the heart, realizes that this is such a shock. You know, that here's this person who looks like he is really one of them, and yet he's not. I mean, he is someone who, who sees what they're doing and is courageous enough to tell the world. Now, this is really wonderful, and it's really huge. And it's a part of this puzzle about why they're so set, basically, on killing him. Uh, they want to just put him out of sight, out of mind, because they do not want to think that someone who looks so much like them is so not like them. Well, they certainly don't like him. Uh, and he has, uh, based on a certain kind of genius, a journalistic genius. He devised a structure that they hate because he managed to make information available without putting the people who want to get it out at risk. Chelsea Manning was a case apart, but uh, it wasn't uh, Assange in that situation. But it is to think of the two of them together and what they stand for and the kind of um, courage they've shown to celebrate the truth and make it available it's just it is unparalleled he's a, he's a publisher of unparalleled uh, capacities and he's being punished for it Yes, and I do think of them together because she, when she was not a she, gave him the information uh, and he, he ran with it. And I think this is exactly what we need to do. We need to share our insights and our, you know, sources and our courage uh, and pass that along to whoever can take us on the next link of the, you know, the race. Um, because actually it is a race. It's a race to secure our freedom of speech. Uh, and our lives, and without people like Julian, uh, with the courage and the smarts, I mean, he is incredibly intelligent, which is great. Without that, uh, we, we have little chance to actually know what is happening. 
I mean, how many people could actually gather all of that information, make sense of it, and pass it along in a form that we can use? It becomes, and it, when you think about these two together, when you think about Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning, who became a woman in solitary but never lost her uh, focus of the meaning uh, in life and what she was there for. It is, it is so troubling to me, Alice, that these two extraordinary people, that this woman, that Chelsea Manning, has demonstrated her commitment to truth and... Mm-hmm. And these are the people that are vilified. And these white guys, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to even mention any names. Are still, you know, they can kill as many as they want. They're still walking around free, uh, exercising their constitutional rights. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they think they own them. Just as they think they own us. But they don't. And that's what, you know, Julian and and Chelsea are, are demonstrating, you know, even though their lives are threatened. It's an incredible, incredibly beautiful thing that they are doing for us and for themselves. Because when you stand in your own truth, it's a light. I mean, it's, it's just shining. And it's very good for us. Yes, indeed. Again, you're listening to Flashpoints. We're with Alice Walker. Uh, and I just want to let people know that uh, for those of you listening in the Bay Area, and actually there are going to be actions all over the country and all over the world uh, because uh, Julian Assange has a hearing coming up uh, next week, in about you know, a week or 10 days. And uh, this is going to determine whether he lives, essentially really, whether he lives or dies. So people are gathering uh, in different places and they're celebrating, they're remembering, they're learning People don't even are just beginning to understand the impact. A lot of journalists know the impact because they all used his material and then they forgot about him. Right. Uh, but uh, and and that's troubling. <laughs> that's troubling too. Uh, oh, but this hearing is coming. Go on. Yes. No, I mean it's how much we do forget. You know, and and it's not it's not all our fault. We're basically fed more things than we can hold in our minds and in our memories. So of course we forget. But some things are very crucial to actually being able to live here and breathe as human beings. And being able to speak your truth is a major thing that we must not let go of, and we must not let go of Julian because he has really accepted you know that that this could happen to him it's, it's, you know he that's part of his courage and his bravery that he was not fooled he didn't think that he just you know pulled the covers off these people and then he'd be fine no i mean there is a history and he knows it and so that's part of what i really truly admire about anyone that you see what is, is you know daunting you see what is a challenge you see what could do you in and you keep going you stand up people are going to be standing up again if you're in the bay area they're going to be standing up in front of the in oakland in front of the grand lake theater uh, we thank the grand lake theater uh, the organizers uh, wanted me to um let uh, the organizers know that uh, the, the the theater owners know that they very much appreciate having julian assange up there 
pre-Julian Assange on the theater, on the marquee. Under that marquee, there's going to be uh, a teach-in, a whole bunch of activities starting at 12 o'clock on Saturday. And uh, again, um, Jeff uh, uh, Mackler has asked me to uh, tell you, remind you that this is what's going on, that he's hoping that many people will show up, stand up, speak out, call attention to this uh, travesty of um, justice. I'm Dennis Bernstein. And I'm Dennis Bernstein. And uh, I think we just want to let you know, we thank Alice Walker. We want to let you know again that that is, in fact, happening uh, on Saturday, uh, 12 o'clock. And, um, you know, it's really important to stand up for the truth to speak out and when people put their lives on the line we at flashpoints uh, like to lock arms and stand with them stay with us we'll be back